welcome to episode two of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. My name is Stephen Bryant, and I'm the researcher behind the site and your host for the show. I want to thank the listeners who found episode one and dropped me a note. I definitely appreciate it. In today's show, we're going to talk about the equations associated with Einstein's theory of relativity. We're going to look at how Einstein created them in his landmark 1905 paper, and we're going to identify where I believe a mistake was made. I'll then explain how to fix the problem, as well as share some thoughts around why this problem has been nearly impossible to uncover. But I have to admit, pointing out a problem where people don't believe one exists is a challenge. And to that end, I want to share a short story with you. A few nights ago, I had dinner with one of my best friends, and at some point we started talking about the podcast and some of the material I was going to share in the next episode. And he was having trouble getting his arms around an example I was trying to share. I was frustrated because I couldn't understand why he wasn't getting my example. And he was frustrated because he couldn't get why I couldn't explain it in terms that he could agree with. Fortunately, our frustrations were short-lived as we were already relaxing in a local wine bar. And you can't be frustrated for too long when you're enjoying a nice glass of Pinot or Syrah. But what I learned from our conversation was extremely valuable. I learned about his perspective. Even though he's not a physicist, his belief system is already firmly grounded in Einstein's theory. And because of his perspective, he was having trouble seeing things from a new perspective, from my perspective, which is what I needed him to do if he was going to understand my example. I was asking my friend to first look at something from my point of view before he could see the problem. I'd asked him to put the cart before the horse. Why should he have to look at something from my point of view first, especially if I haven't convinced him that there's a problem? I needed to first show him the problem from his current perspective before I could ask him to consider seeing something from a new perspective. I needed to say, let me show you the problem first and then give me an opportunity to tell you what it means. And it's with this understanding in mind that I want to approach today's show. For those of you who listened to the first episode, you'll recall that my challenge is based on mathematics. So I'm not going to dive into a lot of mental exercises based on the paradoxes that are introduced by Einstein's theory. In today's show, I'm not going to ask you to change your understanding of what Einstein's theory means. I'm not going to ask you to accept my examples or definitions which you might already be familiar with if you've visited the website. I'm simply going to ask you to accept two things. First, you have to accept Einstein's findings as he presented them in his 1905 paper. This doesn't mean that you have to have read his paper. It just means you have to have enough evidence around you to support a position that, in general, you feel Einstein got it right. Second, you have to accept some basic rules of math and algebra. Now, if you accept these two things, then I hope to use today's show to paint a picture of the problem. And then, in future episodes, we'll explain things from a new perspective. There's a little math involved today, but I promise it won't get any more difficult than high school algebra. To get us started, I'm going to ask that you go to the website, www.relativitychallenge.com, and navigate to the papers section. There you'll find a PDF file associated with episode two of the podcast. Please download this file since we're going to use it today. 
I found that it's easier to talk about math equations when you're looking at the same thing as me. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and the location of the paper has changed, uh, just keep looking around. I'll do my best to make sure it's easy to find. Let's begin by explaining Einstein's equations. So take a look at page three of the PDF. From a mathematical perspective, Einstein provides us with a set of transformation equations. What this means is that we will provide a set of input values, and then we will use his equations to, preset, to produce a set of new values or output values. You'll notice that Einstein's output variables aren't the letters A through Z that many of you are used to. In math, in addition to being able to use the letters A through Z, we can use letters from other alphabets. Einstein has chosen to use the letters from the Greek alphabet as some of his variables. I recognize that if this is your first time working with Greek variables, this might appear a little strange, but don't let this bother you. It's no different than using the letters A through Z. Now, supporters of relativity will expand on this page and will want to talk about things in terms of coordinate systems or reference frames, and that's fine. For the purpose of today's conversation, we don't need to go into that level of detail. It's good enough to know that you simply provide some set of input values and use Einstein's transformation equations to produce some set of output values. That's it. Einstein went through a lot of work to create these equations. Page four is a graphical representation of the process Einstein went through. He began by performing a lot of separate steps to produce each of the four statements that make up his transformation equations. These steps are given in section three of his 1905 paper. As a result of these specific steps, he produces a set of equations. His next step is to multiply these equations by the square root of one minus v squared over c squared. I call this step normalization. Don't worry about what that means, just know that Einstein multiplies his equations by the square root of one minus v squared over c squared. And this is how he arrives at his final equations. But I've said there's a math problem in his steps, and in order to find it, we're going to have to take a closer look at the specific things he did in his paper to create the equations. And we're going to begin by looking at his xi equation. The xi transformation equation is the one on the top. Xi looks like a stylized backwards 3, or stylized capital E, and I hope that I'm pronouncing it right. If not, I'm sure I'll hear about it and I'll correct it in future episodes. Page 5 summarizes Einstein's steps, or the string of mathematical statements that must be true if his xi equation was created without error. Each column represents the math statement that Einstein algebraically introduces into the prior equation. This is simply algebraic substitution. So if you believe that Einstein is right, then you have to accept that the steps he took to create his xi equation are also right. As you look at each of the equal signs, you, you have to believe that every one of those statements will produce the exact same result. In fact, if we find just one of those equal signs that doesn't produce the same result, then the chain of equivalent statements is broken. And if the chain is broken, that would mean there's a problem in Einstein's work. This brings us to a point where I would like to highlight the problem. In fact, there is a problem on page five, and the easiest way for me to show it to you is to pick some values and show you where the chain is broken. 
let's pick some input values for x, y, z, and t. In our case, we'll let both y and z equal 0, since they won't play a role in our example anyway. We'll let x equal 50, and we'll let t equal 10. Now to use Einstein's equations, we also need to select a velocity, so we'll let v equal 5. Einstein also has an alpha variable, which we'll need to set for 1 to 1 for now. So on page 6, we have the four statements that Einstein, as part of his 1905 paper, has said are equal to one another. In other words, when given the same input values, each of these statements must produce the same result. The first statement produces a result of 0. Now, in the second statement, we have to first find x prime. But since Einstein told us how to do this, we can do it without any trouble whatsoever, and we still get a result of 0. So far, so good. Now we reach the third statement. Again, we first have to find x prime. But when we plug the values into the equation, we no longer get 0 as the result. Instead, we get 10 times c, or a number slightly under 3 billion. This does not match the previous two results, and we haven't changed any of our input values. This is a mathematical problem, as we no longer have a chain of equal statements. Something is clearly broken. Now, before we can go about correcting the problem, we have to first find out where it was introduced. In this case, we have to look at a few paragraphs, not the equations, in section 3 of Einstein's 1905 paper. Now, Einstein uses some advanced math called partial differential equations to create his tau, or time transformation equation. Tau is the symbol that looks like a stylized little r. As I mentioned earlier, we're not going to get into anything more complex than algebra. Fortunately for us, the problem occurs before Einstein does his complicated math. But I do need to talk about dependent and independent variables. For our conversation today, we'll say that an independent variable is anything that you or I provide. And we'll say that a dependent variable is anything that is found using an equation. If you review section 3 of Einstein's paper, you'll see him make the statement x prime equals x minus vt. Mathematically, all this means is that if we provide x and t, we can find x prime. Notice that v is typically taken as a given and isn't expl explicitly talked about. Since we're providing x and t, those are our independent variables. And since we're going to use this formula to find x prime, that's our dependent variable. Said another way, the value we find for x prime is dependent upon the values we provide for x and t. Now let's consider Einstein's exact words, which I've captured on page 7. He says, if we place x prime equals x minus vt, it is clear that a point at rest in the system k must have a system of values x prime, y, z, independent of time. So we now ask the question, is this a true statement? And the answer is, it depends. There's a way that you can interpret it such that it's true, and there's a way that you can interpret it such that it's false. It all depends on which variable you choose to represent time. 
So for example, if we add the clause where time is represented by t prime to the end of Einstein's sentence, then everything's okay. But if we add where time is represented by t, then we have a problem. And we have this problem because we've already said that x prime was dependent on t. We can't say that it's independent of t and at the same time say that it is dependent on t. It cannot be something that we specify and at the same time be something that is found by using an equation. It cannot be both. But we know from Einstein's next sentence that he chose to use t for his variable. And this becomes the source of the problem. But I've shown you how to correct the problem. We simply need to change t to t prime when he sets up his partial differential equation. On page 8, you'll see a revised set of steps that explain how to create psi using t prime. This page is free of the math problem I discussed earlier. Now what's very interesting here is that while we fix the math problem, we still end up with the exact same equation for psi as Einstein originally produced. So this begs the question, why was it important for us to fix the problem? First of all, if we're going to accept the equations and the rules of math, that alone is sufficient to require us to fix the problem. But while xi hasn't changed, tau did change, and this is captured on page 9. And this is part of the reason why this problem has been so hard to identify. Because while the problem occurs while he's building one equation, he actually gets that equation right, and the problem shows up elsewhere. In fact, it shows up in something that we've already accepted as a very simple and straightforward simplification. But because it was set up incorrectly, it was simplified incorrectly. And this has made finding and communicating the problem very hard. So today, I hope that I've given you something to think about. I believe I've pointed out a math problem in a very straightforward manner, one that doesn't require you to see anything from my point of view. All that's required is your belief in math and the rules of algebra. And if you're in agreement that there is a problem, then you have to also agree that the problem must be fixed. And that's where my correction comes in. And as you'll see, the change is somewhat subtle, but this seemingly subtle change has some pretty big implications, which we'll discuss in future episodes. So this brings us to the conclusion of episode two of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. Today's music was provided by Causeway and Adrena Thorpe from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You'll find them at music.podshow.com. And today's show is copyright 2007 by Stephen Bryant and RelativityChallenge.com. Thank you for joining me today. I hope that you'll return again next week. Until then, be well.